everybody, welcome to another Ruby Rogues episode. I'm David Kimura, and today on our panel, we have Eric Berry. Hey, I'm back. Sorry I was gone so long. Andrew Mason. Hey, everybody. And today we have a special guest, Karthik Gekwad. Hi, folks. Nice to meet everyone. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code DEVCHAT at Sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code DEVCHAT at Sentry.io. So, Karthik, uh, what do you do? Tell us a bit about yourself, who you work for, and just some of the exciting things that you're working on or why you're famous. I wouldn't categorize myself as famous, uh, but thank you, Dave. Actually, I work at Oracle, and um, ironically, whenever I say I work at Oracle, everybody thinks I know a lot about databases, but I'm probably one of the many people at Oracle that uh, work on the Oracle Cloud side of things. Um, I'm actually, um, I got into Oracle through an acquisition. So I did a bunch of stuff with containers back in the day. Um, I say back in the day, but it was only like, you know, four or five years ago now. Uh, I helped build Oracle's uh, Kubernetes um, uh, product, which we call uh, Oracle Kubernetes Engine. Uh, and then um, I started asking a lot of questions on, hey, how are customers going to use this? What are like different use cases, things like that? And my boss at the time was like, you know what? You would be really good to actually talk to customers and uh, talk to other folks out there. So now I actually do, uh, I'm a principal evangelist. Uh, so I work on the developer relations side of things. Oh, yeah. And, you know, whenever I think of Oracle, I always think of the MySQL, the large uh, database clusters that you guys do, and then also Java. So it's funny to hear Ruby kind of in the mix here uh, or, you know, having Oracle on a Ruby podcast. So uh, what are some of the things that Oracle is doing that really brings Ruby into the mix? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, Oracle, like typically we've been known for our databases. And so MySQL and then Oracle DB by itself. Um, in the last few years, we've been doing a lot more with just cloud in general. So uh, we have Oracle Cloud and it's pretty much like, you know, all the other clouds out there. You can do storage, networking, compute, et cetera. Uh, and we've actually been taking a, uh, not a pivot, but uh, we've been spending a lot of time uh, working with cloud native applications uh, and cloud native platforms. Uh, kind of like Kubernetes, serverless, et cetera. And uh, one thing we've noticed from our enterprises uh, that you know we work with uh, typically is uh, uh, there's a lot of folks that you know do Java, but there's also uh, through time there's a lot of folks that end up having Ruby on there. So you know Ruby is supported as um, uh, in terms of our SDKs for Oracle Cloud to kind of like do what you know whatever you need to from a pro programmatic point of view. Uh, Ruby is one of the five uh, supported languages that we started off uh, initially with because we knew that uh, everybody coming in already had, you know, a need for Ruby. So we do that. Also, from a packaging point of view, uh, a lot of our folks, you know, when you kind of use Kubernetes or when you end up using serverless, everything is packaged into containers. So you might, you know, use Ruby or Ruby on Rails, et cetera, for your applications. But when you end up containerizing it, you can kind of 
ship it and run it wherever you want. Um, and so that's, you know, one of the value adds of doing something like a Kubernetes or, you know, using something like serverless, et cetera. You know, it's interesting that um, Nate Hopkins, who's also on this podcast, typically couldn't make it today. He, uh, he tweeted me this morning and saying, hey, did you know that Ruby for 2018 is actually labeled the uh, server-side programming language of the year? <laughs> this is the very first time it's beat out PHP and Java. So it's interesting to me to actually see that Ruby, even though people do kind of categorize it in the um, Java and, uh, and PHP area where it's like, okay, it's kind of an old, not as sexy, not as fun technology, but it's finally like being accepted as the number one server-side uh, language right now. Yeah. You know, and we'll, we'll dig into a little bit of history. Like in my first, uh, when I first graduated out of college, you know, it feels weird to say this, but like it was over 15 years ago at this point. And it doesn't feel that long ago uh, to me, but, you know, in college, they kind of tell you, hey, you're going to be using like C++ or Java or whatever. So I did all this Java stuff. And then my first job was, everything was in PL SQL. And I was like, wait a minute. Like I thought, you know, Java was like the hottest thing around. And, you know, then eventually I ended up using Java, but probably like maybe five, six years ago, I moved from one company to another and they were actually doing everything in Ruby uh, because we were kind of like a, a startup team and a larger company. And we wanted to, you know, run, run applications and like test out things really quickly. Uh, and Ruby was kind of like the perfect fit for us because not only was it great for development, so to build, you know, web APIs, et cetera. But it was great to, on the operation side of things as well, because uh, one thing that, you know, we don't talk about a lot, but it's, it's a gem over there is that on the first phase of DevOps, uh, on the operation side of things, like everybody was learning Ruby because all of the tooling, uh, you know, Chef, Puppet, uh, Capistrano, Vagrant, et cetera, was, were all based on Ruby. And so like the operation side of the house, when they started saying, hey, what kind of languages should we learn other than, you know, you know learning Bash? Uh, and learning a lot of scripting stuff, like Ruby was the first thing that people picked up. So like, you know, fast forward to today, this is like five years ago, right? So if you fast forward to today, uh, there's that common like uh, knowledge between like the op side of the house and the dev side of the house. So Ruby becomes a really good choice because, you know, you can kind of help each other. Like the whole principle and like the idea of DevOps is everybody's, you know, working together to solve the same problem, right? Like as developers, we're like, you know, running the applications and working with, you know, working with the UIs and, uh, you know, the actual product operation side of the house is actually helping, you know, make everything uh, work for extended periods of time. But if you have a common language between there and, you know, a lot of times that ends up being Ruby so that, you know, folks can actually like do what they need to quickly. So uh, to answer your question, that doesn't really surprise me at all because uh, there's been like movement on both sides of the world. Yeah, and I think nowadays we are really starting to enter in this shift of the whole ecosystem and how things are served. So before, if you wanted to deploy a Ruby on Rails application, you would just push it to Heroku. But more traditionally, you would get a digital ocean box or you know some VM. Then you would SSH into it. You would do all your normal setup. And now you have married yourself to that server long-term for that the life of that project. But things have really taken a shift now where having the servers that stick around for years and years on end, you know, that's kind of the old way of doing things. And now um, I like to call them more like volatile servers, servers that can just be destroyed at any given point in time and new ones provisioned on the fly without any kind of downtime or uh, negative effects. 
So I know that you have done a, a lot of uh, tutorials and work with Kubernetes, and that seems like one avenue. And with the cloud native, is that really where the Oracle product is kind of going with the cloud native, is having a Kubernetes instance that you can then push and deploy to? Or is it going to be more kind of like the uh, Beanstalk uh, instance on AWS where you're provisioning EC2 instances or VMs and having uh, that kind of just all managed behind the scenes? That's a great question. Dave, and like the, when, when you said about, talked about the shift in paradigm, uh, we call that the idea of like uh, cattle, not pets. You know, mm-hmm. like you name your boxes and you're like, hey, you know, everything lives in the sign box, whatever. But now it's just, you know, a random IP or, you know, a random uh, a random box that we have. Um, and I think that, that it, it is very true. I think James Wicket, who does a lot of work in DevSecOps and is one of the pioneers in the DevOps side of things, he, he once said that if you're SSHing into a box uh, and trying to figure out what's wrong in the box, you're already losing. And that's very true today where it's like, you know, you, uh, we typically, we don't have, you know, ones or tens of servers. Uh, most companies end up having, you know, like, you know, over tens or hundreds of servers. So if something does go wrong, you just want to kill the box and then instantiate a new one instead of that. And, you know, cloud computing in general, like whether you're on Amazon or Azure or Google Cloud, that's kind of the, the philosophy that everybody's, you know, working towards. Where cloud native fits in, uh, and cloud native is just like, uh, it's just a long and complicated word. Um, and, you know, everybody has, their own kind of definition to it. But basically, like to me, what that means is your infrastructure is based on, you know, based on Kubernetes or whether it's what, like one Kubernetes cluster or many Kubernetes clusters. And Kubernetes itself looks like, you know, to define it out, it's like an open source system for automating your deployments. You know, it helps you scale uh, your applications or your, uh, you know, nodes and helps you kind of manage your containerized applications. And so that's kind of where Kubernetes fits in. So that's kind of like your, it's your orchestration tool that, you know, helps you manage your cloud, basically. Uh, and a lot of companies are really interested in it because, you know, we talk about the Ruby community, the Java community, communities, et cetera. And they're, you know, they're very open. Everything's in GitHub. And, you know, people like communicate with each other to solve problems. And Cloud Native is the same way. Like all of that stuff is open source. So rather than spending time, you know, working with, like one specific company to figure out, hey, like what is their product strategy for this, blah, blah, blah. Like everything's just out in the open and GitHub tickets, uh, the releases, et cetera. You know, it's a pretty open uh, kind of idea. And so uh, w- one thing that we have seen from uh, enterprises is enterprises actually want to be using things like Kubernetes um, to, you know, host a lot of their applications so that on the off side of the house, there's actually wins on both sides, like dev, uh, there's win on the offside too, because uh, one of the hardest things in the past was operations would spend a lot of time understanding the languages. So they would, you know, figure out Ruby, figure out Java. But on the dev side, you know, we're we're driven more by business case, right? So you know, product teams want to come or uh, product management wants to come to you and say, hey, we need to roll out this new feature, and you realize that the easiest way or like the simplest way to do that would be to use something like JavaScript. But you spent all this time, you know, championing, hey, we should do this in Ruby between dev and ops. And one of the freeing things from the ops side of the house is like, they don't really care anymore, like what language you actually use. You can you know, use Java, you can use Ruby, um, you can use uh, JavaScript, et cetera. 
uh, as long as you kind of adhere to the contract, like, hey, make sure that your application doesn't crash all the time, or you're actually, you know, getting log logs out of the application, getting good metrics out of there. And the whole like cloud native ecosystem kind of helps you with that. Uh, and the, so that's, that's one of the reasons why we're spending so much time, uh, you know, having managed products for Kubernetes specifically, because I don't know about you guys, but when I'm like trying to solve a problem, I want to be solving the problem. I don't want to spend all this time like trying to install, uh, you know, Kubernetes and getting all your clusters and up and up and up and running. You rather just offload <laughs> that to a provider. Yeah. Uh, having spun up and tried out many different Kubernetes uh, pathways, I can attest to that. It's not an easy thing to do, uh, especially if you're wanting to just have a end goal in mind of using it to provision servers from your CI/CD. You know, setting up an entire Kubernetes cluster is not exactly a simple task. So I definitely leave it to the professionals. And that kind of seg segues me into a question of, with the cloud-native Kubernetes instance, how does that compare to something like Google's or uh, other providers who have Kubernetes instances? You know, is there, you know, uh, they're basically all the same, just whoever your provider that you like, you know, go with them? Or uh, do you guys offer stuff that really sets, sets you apart from like the Google Cloud Engine? So probably like two answers for it is on, on the one side, uh, or on one side, regardless of what provider you end up picking, when you get like a managed Kubernetes cluster from the provider, you know, that cluster is, is still uh, Kubernetes. It's like a vanilla Kubernetes instance that you get. From a managed perspective, the, the thing that's different uh, between the providers is like, we'll make choices on, you know, networking for, for the actual Kubernetes instance, like you know, we might say, okay, we'll use CNI, but behind the scenes, we'll use Flannel for it, or we might use, you know, something else instead. So like the provider will end up making some choices for you because you don't want to spend a lot of time understanding like, hey, what networking strategy do I need upfront? And so that's kind of one of the, the value adds of ha actually having a managed instance. Like you can go, uh, you know, either with the CLI uh, or via API or, you know, in the provider's UI, you can go and say, hey, uh, I'm going to go uh, get all of the stuff that I need. One thing that's different in ours and is that like whenever you, uh, so our cloud, you know, it's kind of based a lot for enterprises. So we have a lot of enterprise customers that, you know, use these features. Uh, we have things like audit services. Uh, we have uh, things like logging and stuff like that that comes out of, out of the box for free. So uh, in startups, we, we also have like a startup ecosystem, but I don't know how much folks actually use it. But We've got a lot of enterprise feedback saying, hey, we need to be able to like audit a lot of these things. So when you get, you know, spin up a Kubernetes instance, for example, like anytime you make any changes to the infrastructure, uh, you'll kind of see that in your audit logs uh, because auditing is important from a, from a large enterprise perspective. Uh, same thing goes with like logging and stuff like that, uh, where we'll have, you know, actual logs and stuff uh, kind of stored uh, on our side. So that those are the things that come for free uh, from, you know, as a, as a part of using the cloud. Yeah, I was looking into all the stuff you guys have for startups and it's pretty impressive. You have a lot of like good resources that some of them appear to be free as well for startups. I was just curious as why or what is the purpose, I guess, of Oracle focusing so hard and really trying to pump out startups? Is it just trying to get them on Oracle so that Oracle is for startups too? Or you know, what's kind of the goal there? So this, the startup ecosystem, we, we have a program, uh, and actually, I live in Austin, and so we have a pretty rich 
startup, startup ecosystem here. And then we just uh, released our uh, initial cohorts for the Austin Accelerator program. And so one of the things from a startup perspective is like you kind of want to, you know, you want to kind of work with a large company that has a lot of resources. So from a startup perspective, you know, you can go and say, hey, I want like thousand instances or whatever, and you know, you can get it from our cloud. The the one thing that really helps us from an Oracle perspective is startups typically run really fast uh, and they're always kind of like doing leading edge stuff. And it helps us kind of like uh, from a product perspective and then from a startup perspective, you can kind of like tie those teams together a little bit and say, hey, you know, like this feature is great, but I really need for it to do this, this specific thing or whatever. Um, and so for a lot of a lot of startups today kind of use Kubernetes. So it, it like we can actually like mold some of our feature sets uh, to work better for, you know, startup companies, or we can uh, mold our features to work better for customers in general. So that's kind of like, it gives us a good feedback loop uh, behind the scenes for us. But in general, you know, from a startup point of view, like we don't really take any, we're just kind of giving resources to them. There's like a, a, there's a criteria perspective of like how you can be an Oracle startup and you can read more about that. I think it's like oracle.com slash startup, but the, the startups really like it because they can get a lot of computing power that they wouldn't ordinarily get, um, you know, through like Amazon or whatever. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting to hear and definitely, definitely put it on the radar because I hadn't even thought of Oracle for, I guess, if I wanted to go open a startup, which I have those ideas every other night, I guess, but Oracle had not come to the forefront the forefront of my mind, but after reading through um, some of your pages, it definitely is now. It's definitely impressive to see how you guys are targeting them. Yeah, that's that's awesome. And it, it is funny because like, you know, in the end, you just kind of want a test bed to like test out a lot of ideas. And then, you know, some of those ideas become products. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, that ends up being a, a startup. And I, I worked in like both large companies and startups before. So I know how quickly things change and so sometimes like before you make like a drastic decision in your product, which could also mean your company, like you might want to like talk to somebody and be like, hey, if I change this, like, is there something that you can help me with from a product perspective where I'm like running my infrastructure on, you know, or is there like an easier way to kind of do this? And you might be able to get help from that. One thing that most people kind of think of Amazon, which is kind of like the de facto place. And uh, in the past, I've run a bunch of stuff on Amazon, but it's hard to you know, talk to actually like product management over there uh, to be like, hey, what's what's kind of on your roadmap or what are you guys thinking, et cetera. So, um, you know, from an Oracle's point of view, like we know we're kind of like late to the game on this, but like one, that's one of our differentiating factors. Like we actually want to work with, with folks to kind of figure out, you know, where they want to go and kind of align roadmaps a little bit better. And with Kubernetes, I've always uh, used it and then also kind of seen it as a sandbox platform. So it's something where in my CICD, it would launch a Kubernetes environment where I would have the web servers, the data, database servers, Redis, Elasticsearch, all provisioned by Kubernetes from the CICD. And from there, it would create a temporary environment that would be able to uh, do QA work or whatever testing that needs to be done before it's actually shipped to production. But it sounds like Kubernetes is becoming more and more popular for actual client-facing end-user production use. Is that the case, or is it really more of a sandbox environment? That's a great question, Dave. Um, and I think over time, uh, so the CNCF, which is the Cloud-Native Computing Foundation, um, they're like the foundation that hosts Kubernetes and a lot of the cloud-native 
tooling that kind of surrounds Kubernetes. So they do an annual survey. So every year they kind of ask a bunch of questions. And so this year, um, and the one thing that we kind of keep track of over time is in 2013, uh, when I work, used to work in a startup called Stack Engine, we would kind of ask like, hey, do you run containers? Uh, this is kind of pre, uh, uh, pre-Kubernetes, but like, do you run containers? And then do you run containers in production? And then when Kubernetes got really hot, they were like, hey, do you run Kubernetes? And a lot of people would be like, yeah, we, we run our you know, dev uh, instances on there, and then we might do some testing on there. But, and then the other question we, that was typically asked is, do you actually run Kubernetes in production? And so over time, like initially it was like 10%. And I think uh, last year um, they were saying that there were like 40% of the people that run Kubernetes or like, it was like 40 or 48%, but you know, 40% of folks actually run Kubernetes uh, from a production standpoint. So they're actually running like real life workloads that customers are kind of interacting with. And over time, uh, Kubernetes is at, I think it's at like version 113. I don't know if 114 is released yet, but initially like it was a little bit unstable. Things would change a lot, but uh, Kubernetes has become a pretty solid platform. So like once you install it and you have uh, it up and running, um, you know, it, like there's, it takes a lot to actually like break it uh, these days where it used to be kind of brittle before uh, and stability used to be like one of the biggest concerns to actually run like a platform for your production production applications. But now that it's a lot more stable and, you know, you can kind of run it uh, for weeks and months uh, at end, like people are more comfortable running like production workloads on there. So, you know, I, it's like in the 40s right now. And I think when they do the survey again next year, it'll probably be up in the 60s. So there's like a huge kind of enterprise push towards Kubernetes. Uh, and I think that's like one of the, like a, a win for the, that whole ecosystem. The one thing is like, you know, when I give talks at conferences and stuff like that, people kind of talk about Kubernetes, but there's also like other ways you can kind of do that. Yeah, it's really interesting. I looked up that article on CNCF and it's, I'm actually shocked to see um, that Kubernetes has taken that big of a storm. It seems to be definitely growing more and more popular. Uh, as far as Kubernetes, if someone wants to get started with that, how how do they even start? So, you know, let's say if they were going with the cloud native option or the Oracle cloud, uh, where would they go to to get started? And what are some things that they may not know if they are coming from a traditional, uh, normal virtual machine instance and, you know, SSHing in to do deployments and stuff? Uh, what are some things that people should know to get started? From an Oracle perspective, like I would, um, the easiest way to get started with Kubernetes is not to actually do the self-install yourself, but it would be to get like a managed service. So from an Oracle point, uh, point of view, you know, you go to cloud.oracle.com, you have like a, you know, try it now kind of thing. So you can go get some credits and then run, uh, you know, go into the, um, you know, Oracle console, um, Oracle cloud console. And then just select Kubernetes from there and, you know, get your three node cluster up and running. So that way you're kind of like within five minutes, you've like registered for an account and like actually got a Kubernetes cluster up and running. So you're, you know, trying to do Kubernetes specific things. Uh, from a Kubernetes learning perspective, there's kind of a learning curve over there as well. I gave a talk at KubeCon this year with uh, the guy, uh, his name is Deependra Kare, uh, and he works uh, on a company called CloudYaga, which is uh, a consulting company, but also it's a training kind of company. And he wrote uh, the uh, edX course for Kubernetes. And I, I would say like, that's like a great place uh, to get started, you know, to kind of walk you through the different constructs for Kubernetes specifically. If you have like LinkedIn Learning, or if you have, um, 
you know, lynda.com subscriptions uh, in your companies. I actually have a course on there for learning Kubernetes as well. So, you know, to help you kind of get started with the, the nomenclature, what the different things are, because initially when Kubernetes was rolled out, uh, it was great to host web applications on it. But over time, you can do, you know, so much more on there because it's become a platform to like run all of your infrastructure versus just running like simple web apps. Uh, so you can kind of run cron jobs, you can run, uh, you know, daemon sets that run on all of your different nodes, kind of like uh, how you have, you know, agents today from a traditional point of view. Uh, you can kind of do that with Kubernetes as well. But um, like basically most of the constructs that we have from a, a traditional kind of pod perspective or traditional kind of uh, infrastructure perspective, those translate really well into a Kubernetes point of view as well. Um, so that would, those would be like my two recommendations, like, um, you know, pick a managed Kubernetes offering from the cloud, cloud provider to like help you get started. So you're actually like spending time, you know, working with the Kubernetes CLI and then working with your applications on top of the Kubernetes, on top of Kubernetes. Uh, and then also like looking at some of the training stuff that I talked about. That's some really good information. I was actually about to ask the same thing because I'm a pretty new programmer. So a lot of this, I just learned the word DevOps not more than two months ago. So I guess my question is, I had a guy a couple of weeks ago say to me, I told him that I wanted to learn more about containers and Docker and Kubernetes and things like that. And he said that he suggested I go learn Chef and Puppet and the old way of doing things first. Because if I didn't learn the pain of doing it the old way first, I wouldn't appreciate the, I guess, solutions that Kubernetes offers. And I'm kind of wondering what your thoughts on that. If you are a new programmer coming out of college, should you be looking at, you know, kind of both ways of doing it? Or should you go kind of head in on Kubernetes? Is Because that seems to be the way that our industry is trending right now. Andrew, that's, that's a great question. And like, honestly, there's so many answers to that. Because I feel like in software, uh, you know, five years ago, before the evolution of containers, you could typically kind of like pick three buckets, right? It'd say, hey, I want to do front-end programming because I really like UIs. I really like, uh, you know, the the experience that we're trying to create from a front-end perspective. Uh, and then there was the back-end point of view where you were writing kind of services. Uh, and then once you're like interested in doing that and, you know, interested in writing APIs, you would say, okay, you know, I'm going to pick a specific language uh, to do that. And then from the other perspective, there was like, hey, I really like managing infrastructure. And so you know, you end up learning uh, either like system tooling, whether it's Bash, whether it's something like Chef or Puppet, et cetera, you know, how to like actually manage your infrastructure. As we've grown, um, you know, with, with cloud, the lines between the backend and infrastructure is kind of blurred a little bit with DevOps. So, you know, a lot of times uh, as a developer, you're kind of writing, you might be writing Chef scripts, but you're actually like also writing, you know, APIs behind the scenes for the applications that you print in. Uh, you know, front-end folks are, are actually working with. And there's all of these things, you know, have become like bigger things because there's also, there's a new thing called Cypher uh, Reliability Engineer, so SREs now, and they, SREs actually help with, you know, making sure the quality of the applications running um, are, you know, up to par, uh, making sure that we're like following best practices. Front-end has kind of taken off a lot as well with, you know, the, the evolution of React and the evolution of Vue, et cetera. Like everything's kind of like exploding. Containers also have kind of taken up like this huge storm in between where it's like, hey, we don't care about what language you're kind of working with. 
you can package whatever language in a container and run that, uh, and you build a contract. And I think it's, uh, you know, they call it the 12-factor app, right? So 12-factor uh, kind of like defines all these different uh, different principles that you should kind of be following and that translates really well. I think that actually came from Heroku uh, to build like Heroku applications, but that, that translates really well to containers. And so you like from when somebody is fresh out of college, uh, that's one thing I really ask folks, like, you know, figure out where like your passion is. And, and, you know, it might not even be like any of these things. It might be like, hey, I really like data and I really like analyzing data. You know, you can talk to people about like data science and you know, figuring out how to analyze data in different ways. But I think you figure out one of those three areas of interest. And from there, you can kind of say, OK, if it's front end, you know, take a look at like front end frameworks and like different things that are going on there. Um, if it's like back end or, you know, infrastructure, you can kind of look at more at DevOps or, you know, Kubernetes, et cetera. Uh, and then if it's like completely infrastructure based, uh, you know, then something like learning like Chef or something like that would be great uh, because that actually helps you understand how you build that infrastructure. And then from there, you can kind of like, you know, learn Kubernetes or whatever. No, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so there's some people and I'm going to call them out like Eric, who do not like servers, do not like any kind of infrastructure, and they just want to have their application be on the internet for people to consume, doesn't want to have to manage it all. You're not alone. Yeah, so that's, that's partially why I'm like not saying a lot because uh, all of this stuff, <laughs> I think this stuff requires a certain level of masochism that, that I don't have. And uh, that being a, a pure interest in the develop the DevOps side of things, how servers work. I'm a Heroku baby. I'm a spoiled little brat, and, I've, and that's all I'm using. In fact, my Heroku bill this month is like seven hundred dollars, but still, it works really well, and it's cheaper than hiring somebody to learn and run Kubernetes. So, I've talked to people before who who said you should look at the Kubernetes, but make sure that you understand it full-time and take a course or hire somebody full-time to manage that. What's your view on, on that type of aspect? Is this kind of an all-or-nothing deal where maybe, there, maybe it's just not for small, small uh, startups? Maybe it's only for mid to, to large companies that can afford to hire that individual DevOps engineer to manage this? That's a great question. Uh, Eric, actually, like everybody else on the panel, like I would also say, yes, I'm kind of in the same same boat because I'm all about like solving the problem at hand and, you know, not spending a lot of time doing a whole bunch of stuff that from a product point of view, like one matter at the end. Serverless has become this new big paradigm as well. And it kind of sits alongside Kubernetes and cloud native. And a lot of the companies, you know, especially on the, on the startup side, uh, when we talked to startups, I had given like a a why to cloud native talk a little while ago. And one of the questions that came up was this exact question, like, hey, um, how do I hire for, you know, engineers that have Kubernetes experience? Because there, there's a not, not a lot of people that already do it. So, and, you know, it's actually hard because there's a lot of stuff to learn. And so my, I'm like super practical uh, when it comes to stuff like this. So I always say, if you're like a startup and, you know, you're, you might have like, team of two people or like four people, et cetera. And if you're pretty small and you're trying to solve a problem, like just solve that problem. Uh, don't actually go and pick Kubernetes and understand the workings of it. If you already know it, that's great. Cause you know, it's, you kind of, you can, you know, get started and do whatever you need to, but you know, starting with a serverless paradigm where you might be writing APIs or whatever, 
you know, you can use Lambda or Heroku or uh, on the Oracle side of things, we have um, Oracle Functions, uh, which is our platform that's very similar to what Lambda is. So you can write your applications, your APIs in whatever language you want to pick, whether it's uh, Ruby, Go. Uh, there's a lot of folks that like to write stuff in Java, so we support that as well. And then, you know, you kind of offload it to the provider to tell, hey, you know, here's this function that I wrote, and uh, here are the inputs and here are the outputs, and this is what I expect. Um, and you guys go figure out how to, like, uh, run this stuff. So you kind of offload that work to the provider. And that's kind of like a lot of startups actually use serverless technologies today to do that exact thing where it's like, okay, we're not spending time actually doing all the hard work to manage all these servers. We let the, the cloud actually manage that for us. But then, you know, as you kind of grow over time, uh, you realize, okay, well, either, you know, either we'll have a lot more people join uh, or you, your use cases will kind of change a little bit where you might go from single product to a bunch of different, you know, a bunch of products. You might have internal products, et cetera, and you need uh, different ways to kind of manage that. And Kubernetes makes a lot more sense from that point of view because you might hire infrastructure engineers. Uh, you might have, uh, you know, different different needs for, for your company. And so a lot of like enterprises actually kind of move towards Kubernetes because in the past, uh, and I guess I'm going off on a little bit of a tangent, but um, in the past, from an infrastructure point of view, you know, you'd have engineers who were really good at managing web logic servers, or you might have engineers uh, that were really good at managing like other specific kind of servers. And then when you, from a dev point of view, if you wanted to use something new, like you, they wouldn't allow you to use that because you know they didn't have expertise in you know managing all those kind of servers, right, or those platforms. And so Kubernetes gives you like a unified platform to manage like all of the different things that you need. And so from an from a enterprise perspective, it's like a slam dunk because it's like, hey, you can bring whatever you want. And then we, we just have to manage the nodes and the actual like control plane that Kubernetes has. So from that point of view, that's, that's why the enterprise adoption of Kubernetes is so, so quick because you can do whatever you want that you're already doing today and then manage on top of Kubernetes. So all your existing stuff that you already learned Still, like transcends uh, on top of this like new framework. But you know, going back from a startup point of view, like if you're just trying to solve specific problems, like it might be better to like pick a serverless, you know, serverless infrastructure or something. But if you're doing you know something crazy uh, where you're like, hey, I need GPU specific nodes to run this application job because I'm doing Bitcoin mining, etc. You know, then it's like, okay, you know, you might want to invest in like learning Kubernetes. But if you're just writing simple APIs, just Keep it simple. Interesting. So the moral of the story is if you're if you're mining Bitcoin, make sure you're using Oracle and Kubernetes, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just giving you a hard time. Um, okay, well, where, where do people go to get started um, learning how to use the Oracle cloud and to use the uh, tools that you're discussing? For sure. To get trial accounts, I would go to cloud.oracle.com. And that's kind of like our our landing page of um, all the different things for Oracle Cloud specifically. You can also go to docs.oracle.com. That gives you uh, all the different documentation things that we have for the cloud. But chances are you'll start on cloud.oracle.com, sign up for an account, and then you know go into the cloud console from there and then kind of like start playing with stuff before you start looking at documentation. And is there a free tier with the cloud Oracle? Yep. Uh, so we give, uh, I think it's a $500 credits for folks that, you know, sign up and want to kind of try it out and like play around with the different things that we offer from a cloud perspective. So that's kind of like the free tier that we have today. 
Thank you for just taking away my evening. <laughs> Sorry, Andrew. Hey, but you have, if you have questions, feel free to ping me. I'll be happy to help. Oh, well, you said you were going to be here for us all day, so. All night long, baby. All night? Well, <laughs> that's a big promise because I'm more likely to be up all night. <laughs> well, I just have a newborn, so, you know, he keeps waking up all the time. So I'm like available 24-7. That's my SLA, yeah. SLA right now. Perfect. Yeah. And you're all night for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I know how that goes. I have a five-year-old, four-year-old, and a two-year-old. So when one of them wakes up, they wake up the other ones. And then that one wakes up the other one. The one who just fell back asleep now gets woken up. So it's a vicious cycle. So I think, I think that's... Called that load balancing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, so is, is there anything else that we need to know about the Oracle Cloud or Kubernetes in general or serverless? I think we kind of talked through a bunch of different things today. So from, from a high level, uh, basically from a cloud standpoint, you know, uh, Oracle Cloud has all the different features that you would expect uh, from a regular cloud. We pay a lot more emphasis to cloud native. So we have our own registry, uh, which we call OCIR, which is very similar to, very similar to Docker Hub. Um, but it's an enterprise kind of version of that. So, you know, we have, we have that. We have a managed Kubernetes service. Uh, we re- recently released um, our functions platform, which is a serverless platform that runs uh, FN. Uh, so FN project is the, the, it's the open source version of the project um, that we run on uh, Oracle Cloud. And then on the Oracle Cloud, we call it uh, uh, Oracle Functions instead. And then we're, we're kind of releasing a bunch of stuff as we go along. Uh, but most of most of the things that w- we're releasing over time, you know, they're kind of in this whole like cloud native kind of space, you know, cloud native serverless kind of space. Awesome. This episode is brought to you by TripleByte. Applying to programming jobs sucks. You have to put the right keywords in your resume. You spend hours and hours on the phone screens and take home projects. And that's assuming the company even responds to your application. Well, if you're a software engineer, TripleByte can help. They work with over 400 top tech companies from big names like Dropbox and Adobe to exciting startups. You do one brief online interview with them, and if you do well, you go straight to final interviews with the company on their platform. It's like the common app for software developers. TripleByte does not look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. I've helped dozens of software developers with various credentials get jobs, and this looks like a terrific way for you to get in and get interviewed and get a job without a lot of the hassle and overhead. You can go check them out at triplebyte.com rogues. That's triplebyte.com byte as in eight bits. As a special offer for listeners of this show, if you take a job through Triple Byte, they'll offer you a $1,000 signing bonus. Well, cool. Uh, is there anything else we want to talk about? Should we move on to picks? Andrew, why don't you start us off with picks? All right. So when I first got into software development, I was first exposed to developers and not just um, professors in school and things like that. I was quickly shown iTerm2 and um, ZSH and all that fun stuff. But recently, I've been using something called Archipelago. It's an open source terminal terminal emulator. And I like it way more than I liked iTerm2. It's just a lot cleaner. It's fast. And it's open source. And I don't know. I love it. I would highly recommend if you're sick of iTerm2 or just looking for something new. Cool. Yeah, that looks a lot like a hyper terminal. Oh, wait, it was inspired by Hyper. Yeah, I think he he built it on Xterm, I believe. So, yeah, he said he played with Hyper a little bit and kind of built this out. Cool. And Eric, picks for you? 
I got a couple of uh, a couple of them. So over Christmas, uh, we we had to play it pretty light because you know expenses and kids. Yeah, kids. Good luck, uh, Karthik. <laughs> so I got a pretty cheap gift, but it's super awesome. Which is a um, it's a desk mini fridge which holds six cans of soda. And uh, I work in my basement, and this this machine I find I use it all the time. It's just this little tiny fridge that I can keep some like cheese in there and a couple of diet cokes and whatever I want. That thing's been crazy useful and uh, fairly inexpensive. The other pick I have is actually very related to what we've been talking about. Now, for me, somebody who doesn't like to do DevOps, but still wants the ability to run microservices on a serverless platform, there's a new technology coming out called Asynchy. Now, Asynchy is, um, it is, it allows you to write or consume microservices that have been written open source. And then you can actually orchestrate applications together using their storybook language. So um, I'm pretty excited about this. I'm actually so excited that I'm going to be giving a talk later this year on it. But uh, Asynchy is, uh, they're in beta right now. So yeah, check them out. I love this website. Cool. All right, I'll hop in with a uh, pick. So on the Driftwood Ruby screencast that I had done a few weeks ago, my audio equipment died on me. So that was not fun finding out that at 11 p.m. half my audio was destroyed. So I got a new mixer. It's a PreSonus Studio Channel Amplifier. And it has a compressor and also a built-in equalizer. So uh, that's been my new toy that I've been playing around with. And I, I actually think that it sounds, you know, I have the same microphone. It has a much better sound than the original mixer that I had. So I've been really impressed with it. Then Karthik, do you have any picks? So I used to be a Sublime Text guy for a long time, and I would use that Especially when I, I went to Ruby, I started using Sublime Text uh, a bunch. And recently, like for the last uh, few months, I've been using uh, VS Code for all of my uh, code stuff. And I really like it because it's not really... I used to be in a group sky back in the day, but it's so much like lighter uh, and it just makes my software development a lot, lot simpler. So I would uh, give kudos to VS Code. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, I love talking with people who are using them. And then after I, you know, bash them long enough and talk to them long enough, they've switched over to VS Code. So that, that brings me a lot of joy. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's awesome. And then like, there's just so many plugins for it. And it just makes it's like, it's fast too. And that's like the part that I'm really like critical about. And, and them and Sublime Text, the reason I used to use both of those is like, it was just like fast to use, you can kind of get your stuff done. But VS Code is um, even better, I feel. Yeah. Well, cool. If people want to find out what you're working on or find you on the internet, where would people go? Oh, yeah. Great question. Um, so uh, as a part of my team, uh, we're, uh, you can find all the stuff we do on cloudnative.oracle.com. Um, we have like a blog uh, and then we have a lot of content for uh, like new content for folks that are trying to learn Kubernetes. So that's the learn, learn portion of our site. And so we keep adding a bunch of stuff on there uh, for cloud native applications, Kubernetes, et cetera. On Twitter, you can find me at Iteration One. If you live in Austin, come out to a DevOps Days Austin. Uh, that's a conference that I, I host with a bunch of the other folks that are super involved in our community. Uh, and then, yeah, and on, you can find me on LinkedIn as well. 
Awesome. Well, thank you for being on the show today and giving us an insight into the cloud native and a lot of the things that you're doing there. Certainly. Thanks so much, y'all. All right. Talk to y'all later. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.